You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and I'm very happy to be the host of this show. In this special holiday edition, I'll be speaking with Adrian Goldsworthy about his biography of Julius Caesar. Really, I wanted to try and bring Caesar alive as a, a human being. I mean, there's a tendency when you study any great figure in history for them just to become the sum total of trends, of ideas, of stresses in society or the political system, and I think they end up losing some of their humanity. They're not flesh and blood people. So I was hoping to do that with Caesar and to try and bring him and all the people involved in the story to life. Ivan Brunetti and Todd Hignite about the development of graphic fiction. For me, it would be a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, I haven't seen it in a few years, but uh, there's a scene where Snoopy's uh, booing Charlie Brown as their play director, and that's that's one of my fondest... uh, holiday memories, I think. It, it gets me every time. <laughs> I have to agree with that. It's a Charlie Brown Christmas for me. I just have, um, I have a deep emotional attachment to Charlie Brown. And Fred Shapiro about the decisions behind the Yale Book of Quotations. It took about uh, five or six years. Uh, so it, uh, it, which sounds like a long time, but actually considering that I was really reinventing the quotation dictionary and examining every quotation uh, from a fresh standpoint and, and researching its true origins, I think it could have taken a lot longer than that. Stay tuned. From Suetonius to Shaw, authors and dramatists have been fascinated by the life of Julius Caesar, and with good reason. Caesar's writings, military exploits, political maneuverings, and spectacular death, these all point towards the fact that this was no ordinary man. The latest author to look at Caesar's life is Adrian Goldsworthy in the book Caesar, Life of a Colossus. The Wall Street Journal wrote that Goldsworthy tells the story with great skill and narrative force. Britain's The Independent described the book as definitive and entertaining, and it is currently ranked 10th on Amazon.com's Best Books of 2006. I'm happy to be speaking with Adrian Goldsworthy about this book. Adrian, thanks for coming on to the Yale Press podcast. Thanks. It's nice to be asked. What did you hope to add to the discussion of Caesar's life with this book? Really, I wanted to try and bring Caesar alive as a, a human being. I mean, there's a tendency when you study any great figure in history for them just to become the sum total of trends, of ideas, of stresses in society or the political system. And I think they end up losing some of their humanity. They're not flesh and blood people. So I was hoping to do that with Caesar and to try and bring him and all the people involved in the story to life. And understand all aspects of Caesar's life, you know, not simply have him as Caesar the soldier, Caesar the politician, but to to look at both aspects, both sides of it, and try and look at every stage of his life in as much detail as we possibly could. So in a sense, the aim was to produce the sort of biography you'd write about somebody more recent, like Winston Churchill or Napoleon, and try and bring a Roman, Julius Caesar, to life in the same way. You've been known primarily as a military historian. Was it a challenge writing biography? It was certainly different. Um, I've not, this is the first one I've done. I've written books where there's been a biographical element. Uh, you know, I've written books about where chapters been on a particular Roman commander, that sort of thing. But um, I've been fascinated by Caesar for a very long time, really, since I, I started studying ancient history. So 
my background formally is more in, in general history. It just happens that I've gone in the military direction. So to some extent, this is going back to uh, the, some of the original reasons I got interested. So um, it was certainly different, but um, I think really it's history's history, and it's you, you study it in the same way whichever aspect of somebody's life you're looking at. So do you remember your first encounter with the classical world? Oh, probably came from when I was quite young, really, watching some of the old epic movies on television. But then in particular, um, where I live in South Wales, there's a, an excavated Roman site some 20 miles away to the east, a place called Caelian, where there's a Roman legionary fortress, and there's part of the barracks and the walls excavated in quite a large amphitheater. So I remember as a child pestering my parents to take me there on repeated days when it always seemed to be raining, because it's that sort of place. But there was something exciting about being able to touch something that the Romans had left, that the Romans had built. So although, yes, I could see the interest in ancient Egypt or Greece and other periods of history, with the Romans I could go and touch it, I could go and see it. So it made it somehow more immediate, the, the, the thought that the Romans had been here and they'd lived just where I live. You've done quite a lot of press for this book. Is there a question you've been asked more than others? I suppose the big one always tends to be, um, what's the relevance of this to modern politics? Can you see parallels in Iraq, in Afghanistan? The other one that's quite surprising is, is there anyone you see in the world who's just like Caesar? And I must confess to that one, I can't really see any modern politician or statesman who comes anywhere near to that incredible mix and range of talents that Caesar had. I mean, this was a remarkably intelligent, well-educated man who turns out to be an incredible general. He also turns out to be a great speaker. He can frame a law. You know, he can deliver a speech. He can win over a crowd in the forum. He's also a man who's writing manuals about reforming Latin grammar and writing poetry and all sorts of things. I mean, that range of capacity is quite incredible. There haven't been too many people in history who've combined quite so much um, ability as Julius Caesar. And I don't really see anyone in the modern world who's like that. One big difference with the Romans is that modern politicians tend to have their teams around them. You know, they've got people who write their speeches. They've got people who tell them this is where they appear. This is how they dress. This is the action you perform. This is what you do. It's not really the case in Rome. I mean, Caesar does have his advisors. He has his close confidence, but nearly everything comes from him. You know, this is a man who writes his own speeches or makes them up on the spur of the moment, delivers them off the cuff, and yet produces something that is far more powerful in his use of language than the vast majority of us can ever ever hope to create. I mean, it's, it's the sort of power of language that you feel you probably can see reflected something similar in, say, Churchill's speeches, you know, that are just so memorable, and all you've got to do is hear them or even read them, and they just seem to come alive. So I don't think there's a Caesar around today, and you know, given that Caesar got involved in the Civil War and did cause great uproar for the state, it's perhaps just as well that there isn't. But I think there are some similarities in the the dislocation between um, which you have in the build-up to the Civil War, where you have Roman politicians willing to let problems that everyone admits are a serious problem facing the state, but they don't want to let anyone else get the credit for solving them. So they'd much rather have the problem continue than let let a rival, let an opponent get some credit. So there's a sense of inertia over some issues in the center of politics, in the center of government that I think you certainly see reflected in Britain, and I think to some extent in the U.S. as well. Um, there are too many lobby groups that have basically tied up real debate and have stopped people from acting and dealing with things that everybody knows ought to, ought to be solved. Um, the other parallel, I suppose, is if you look at um, 
the Afghanistan-Iraq situation. If you look at Caesar's campaigns, from the very beginning, as soon as he arrives in Gaul, yes, he's a brilliant general, yes, he wins these incredible military victories, but all of those victories are completely embedded in a concerted political diplomatic program. From the beginning, Caesar realizes that winning a victory isn't enough. You've got to make a political peace. You've got to create a settlement. And, I mean, it's quite clear that that's something that wasn't done with enough um, force or um, certainly successfully and with enough effort in the early stages, which has caused problems down the line. Um, perhaps the encouraging thing, if you look at Caesar, is, though, that um, Caesar himself was very good at showing his genius by getting out of a mess that he created himself. So... And no matter how bad things seem to be, Caesar's example might be that, well, there is always a way out, as long as you can think about it and as long as you devote the resources and you're dedicated enough to pursue it. But the first thing is always to admit that you've got something wrong and then find the solution yourself. So this is going out for the holiday edition of the show. And I was wondering if you could read um, a portion of the book where Caesar decided to take a break. None of the theories devised to explain this trip have been entirely adequate. In the end, it's very hard to avoid the conclusion that Caesar simply wanted a rest. He'd been almost constantly on campaign for over a decade, and since crossing the Rubicon, had enjoyed no significant break from his labors. For all his restless energy, it's difficult to believe that he was not tired and perhaps somewhat empty. In his view, he'd been forced to fight a civil war he had not wanted, and since Pharsalus and the death of Pompey, his world had changed forever. His greatest rival, a man who had only been his enemy for a short time, had gone. There was no one now left in the Roman world against whom he could compete. Fatigue, and perhaps also depression, as much as fear of plots, might also explain the late-night drinking parties which had begun in the months of Alexandria. His 53rd birthday was approaching in July of 47 BC, while his hairline was rapidly receding, something which upset a man who had always been very conscious of his appearance. Looked at in this, in this context, the attractions of a life of luxury and ease, cruising along the Nile at a steady pace and not rushing on to the next task, become more obvious. Added to these, there was Cleopatra as companion and lover. She was young, which was surely especially attractive if Caesar was beginning to feel old age encroaching, and she was also clever, witty, and well-educated. As well as sexual pleasure, there was the joy of the affair, of conversation both frivolous and learned, and of simply being with a sophisticated woman. Caesar Life of a Colossus can be found at booksellers. To hear an extended interview with Adrian Goldsworthy, go to www.yalebooks.com. Cartoons, comic strips, graphic fiction, whatever the name, the marriage of written words with drawing has undergone a tremendous change since the beginning of the 20th century. In an anthology of graphic fiction, cartoons, and true stories, cartoonist Ivan Brunetti brings together works that span the 20th century and show the depth and breadth of this art form. In In the Studio, Visits with Contemporary Cartoonists, Todd Hignight, the founding editor of Comic Art Magazine, interviews nine contemporary cartoonists, including Ivan Brunetti. I caught up with both of them recently and spoke with them about their books and cartoons in general. So, Ivan, how did this anthology come about? Um, well, it's a, kind of a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, after McSweeney's number 13 came out that Chris Ware edited, the all-comics issue, I think there was a lot of interest in other publishers doing something similar. Um, so Yale had the idea of doing uh, an anthology um, that was more historical, I guess, um, so a slightly different focus. And um, actually, Chris Ware was originally asked to do it, but he had just finished editing McSweeney's and uh, didn't want to go through another anthology right off um, right after finishing that. So he recommended that they maybe talk to me since I had worked a little bit with him on that. And um, I spoke with uh, an editor there and um, talked about what kind of 
book we could put together, and then I wrote up a formal proposal with a pretty um, detailed description of what would be in there, and they accepted it, and that pretty much um, is it, and it just took me like a year and a half to actually put it together, but um, that's pretty much the story of how it came about. Todd Hignite, your book in the studio is just that, interviews and pictures of cartoonists in their studios. How many of these artists did you already know from your work on Comic Art Magazine? Well, that that feature started off with Dan Klaus, and he was the the only one that I really know at all, and certainly not well. I'd um, I'd actually uh, self published a Xerox fanzine with a with a friend um, when I was a teenager, and visited him and interviewed him for that uh, maybe ten years prior, um, and I was a huge admirer of his work, so I knew him a little bit. But the feature began running in my magazine, so. Uh, the other artists were aware to some degree, I imagine, of the project as it went on. Um, but uh, the first two artists I thought of were, were just um, basically two of my favorite cartoonists, uh, Chris Ware and Dan Klaus. And then I, I sort of, as it went along, I processed what was most interesting to me about the way that the features turned out. Um, and that sort of influenced which artists I subsequently approached. Um, I think obviously a strong tie with comics history was was really important from the outset. Um, for me, the best cartoonists, uh, certainly from the generations that, that I approach, are almost always devoted students of the history of comics in a very personal way. And uh, so that's kind of how, how it grew. So let's take a walk through the newspaper. Ivan, what strips should I read and look at to get a sense of what a good cartoon is? In today's newspaper? Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty slim pick in. So there are, I mean, there's that strip mutts by The show will be running during the holiday season. If you could only save one, which would it be? A Charlie Brown Christmas or How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Uh, for me, it would be a, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, I haven't seen it in a few years, but uh, there, there's a scene where Snoopy's uh, booing Charlie Brown as their play director, and that's, that's one of my fondest <laughs> uh, holiday memories, I think. It, it gets me every time. 
I have to agree with that. It's uh, Charlie Brown Christmas for me. I just have, um, I have a deep emotional attachment to Charlie Brown. Where does that emotional attachment come from? <laughs> um, ever since I was a kid, I just sort of completely identified with him, you know, kind of that deluded sense of optimism in the face of, you know, just constant bad luck. What's the most encouraging trend that you're seeing in cartooning now? Um, I think just people taking it a little more seriously and having higher um, ambitions and goals than they might have, you know, 20 years ago where there are only a, a few cartoonists that were really trying to push the art form. And I, I think what's happened is um, it's been legitimized as an art form, and, and so now people are going into it without having to worry about raising that bar. Kind of the bar has been raised, and they have to work at a certain level. So, um, you know, a lot of them have taken up that, that challenge of, of working up, you know, to that level. Todd, what's the most encouraging trend that you're seeing in cartooning? The inclusion of such disparate voices and, and formats. I don't think there's any sense of limit now with regard to uh, subject matter or approach, which to me is really exciting. Um, I think, uh, you know, at a certain point with all this attention, people really can do whatever they want with the medium and, and sort of experiment in, in a lot of different ways. What about discouraging? What's the most discouraging trend that you're seeing in cartooning? Actually, kind of like um, it's related to what, I, what was encouraging about it. The other, there's a bad, there's a flip side to that, which is um, that maybe it's, we're going to maybe see less kind of experimental work in a way, or I, I, sometimes I worry because our art, um, the, the art of comics has been legitimized to a certain degree, that we're going to get a lot of competent work, but nothing that's really compelling, because for so long that the only reason to do it was because you were compelled, and that, that force of, of that artist working in that medium, like they were just compelled to do it, and that carries through on the page, and um, because that's gone, that has a good and, and bad side to it. Like I said, the, the bar's been raised, and that's good, but... Um, there might also be some complacency because of that. Um, although, from what I've seen, there's still quite a few like aggressively experimental cartoonists that are kind of like redefining things even at this very moment. So, I'm actually pretty optimistic that um, it's still kind of an open art form, and we haven't really figured out everything yet. And there's um, we're not totally sure where it's going. Uh, I guess the most discouraging trend I'm seeing, although it doesn't really affect comics that I'm particularly interested in is and it seems like there's an approach by a lot of young cartoonists to the comic as merely sort of a storyboard uh, for movies or video games or other uh, media. Uh, it seems like any time something becomes hip in the dominant culture, which comics undeniably are these days, uh, there's a lot of work that, that people just try and use it for um, other ends and try and capitalize on, on the medium, and, and you see a lot of work that isn't particularly interesting. So that would be the most discouraging thing I can think of. Ivan, is that, do you see that in, uh, in as well? Um, yeah, I think that he's basically uh, worried about the same thing I'm worried about, where there's like a competency, but not um, something really compelling being made. What are, you, what are both of you looking most forward to in 2007? Oh, I, I can go first. I'm looking forward to 2008. It's just going to be a really busy year, so just trying to get through it. Um, <laughs> I'm <laughs> going to set my sights on maybe a time when I can relax. I would say for me, just as, as a fan of comics, there's a fellow named uh, Peter Maresca who's working on uh, volumes reprinting more or less uh, obscure newspaper strips from the early part of the 20th century. And... Uh, 
I'm not sure if they're supposed to debut in 2007, but that's the project I'm most looking forward to. It's sort of a comics that time forgot project. Ivan Brunetti's an anthology of graphic fiction, cartoons, and true stories, and Todd Hignight's In the Studio, Visits with Contemporary Cartoonists, are on sale now. To hear extended interviews with both men, go to www.yalebooks.com. Bartlett's Oxford and now Yale. In 2006, the very first edition of the Yale Book of Quotations was published, and it's been quite a success. It is currently number seven on Amazon's top reference books of 2006. I'm very glad to be speaking with the editor of the Yale Book of Quotations, Fred Shapiro. Fred, welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So this is the first edition of the Yale Book of Quotations. How did this project begin? Well, I had published a book of legal quotations, American legal quotations, back in the 1990s. And in doing that, I developed some new techniques of researching quotations and presenting quotations. And I became interested in whether I could do the same thing for a general quotation book covering all subjects rather than just law. So I approached Yale University Press about doing a general quotation dictionary, and they were very interested. So what is it that separates this uh, book from Bartlett's or Oxford's book of quotations? Well, there's two two big differences. First of all, my book is more comprehensive uh, and more modern and more American-oriented. Those other two books uh, emphasize older quotations, uh, British quotations, whereas I was really intent on... I included the the most famous uh, older quotations and quotations from all over the world, but I was particularly concerned to include modern American culture and and also subjects like popular culture, children's literature, sports, computers, politics, which were not that thoroughly covered by the other books. So that's one difference, uh, comprehensiveness. Another one is that I did much more intensive research than any quotation book had ever done before. I used uh, tremendous resources of online historical texts, which are now available on the World Wide Web, and I could really dig deep into the history of the language and literature to find when certain sayings first appeared. So uh, it's it's a very uh, deeply researched book. If I had not done it at this time, I could not have done the same kind of book because the tools would not have been available before the last few years. So do you remember when you first became personally interested in quotations? It goes back a long ways, actually, when I was, I don't know, about 10 years old. My father brought home a quotation book from the uh, Strand Bookstore in New York City, a a big used bookstore, and uh, I really enjoyed looking through that. And uh, when I was in college, I I edited a popular quotation column in the the school newspaper. Uh, But it's uh, it's something I've been interested in, particularly uh, became challenged with the idea of doing something innovative with quotations and something uh, perhaps better than, than what anyone had done before. So how long did this book take you and your associates to put together? It took about uh, five or six years. Uh, so it, uh, it which sounds like a long time, but actually considering that I was really reinventing the quotation dictionary and examining every quotation 
uh, from a fresh standpoint and, and researching its true origins, I think it could have taken a lot longer than that. So is there a holiday quotation you'd like to leave the listeners with? Well, I think a good one is Joy to the World, which comes from uh, a hymn writer, Isaac Watts, in uh, the Psalms of David Imitated, which was published in 1719. The Yale Book of Quotations is now on sale at booksellers everywhere. To hear an extended interview with Fred Shapiro, go to www.yalebooks.com. And that's the end of this holiday edition of the Yale Press podcast. Currently, Yale University Press is having a holiday sale with 50% off selected titles and free shipping through the holidays. More information is a click away at www.yalebooks.com. Starting in January, the Yale Press podcast will be posted semi-monthly, so if you don't want to miss all the fun, do yourself a favor and subscribe to the show. Go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites, or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press blog. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you have any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. Also, if you have any questions for the authors on the show, send them in, and I'll pick one each episode for an Ask the Author segment. Finally, I speak for everyone at Yale University Press and wishing you and your loved ones a happy and healthy holiday season and a prosperous new year. See you in 2007. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com.